Chapter Nineteen of East by West: A Journey in the Recess, Volume Two, by Henry W. Lucy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nineteen: Delhi. Waiting for the train at Agra, hanging with Hindus and Moslems on the bridge, I saw a sight doubtless familiar enough in this ancient stronghold of the Mohammedan faith, but fresh and marvellous to Western eyes. As the train drew up, there poured from it the incessant stream of third-class passengers, which, coming and going, is the fount of the wealth of Indian railways. When the stream began to fail, four men, carrying two kangos chairs, approached the end compartment of a third-class carriage, out of which was projected the head of a grim old man, becomingly attired in white turban and flowing robe of bright pea-green, the old gentleman got out when the coolies came up and a great white sheet was produced this was carefully elevated so as to touch the top of the carriage the lower end draping the chairs and hiding them from view the old gentleman who had been hovering around the group cackling like an old hen whose chickens were giving her trouble now disappeared behind the sheet which was violently agitated from within there was certainly some one there, and underneath the lowest fold of the sheet I caught sight of a bare foot, which was a great deal too small to belong to the old gentleman. After the space of a moment the sheet was withdrawn, and presto, there was no one there but the old gentleman, looking heated and flurried. Whilst I was watching this native conjurer, the coolies picked up the two kangos, which were jealously closed in with red cloth, and rapidly moved off, the old gentleman hitching up his pea-green gown and hobbling after them, the furrows on his face visibly deepening as he made his way through the crowd, his eyes fixed upon the coolies and their presumably precious burdens. When he had seen them clear out of the station, the indefatigable old gentleman trotted back to the carriage, and getting in, shut the door after him. The compartment was hidden from the view of other occupants of the carriage by means of a black cloth fastened across the open ironwork that divides third-class carriages on the Indian railways. But I caught a glimpse of him from the outside, and noticed that he seemed to be occupied in making up a parcel of clothing he had one of the large bed-quilts without which no native travels in this winter weather and was hurriedly tying it around something he opened the door and the bedclothes began to move clumsily making the descent from the carriage to the platform then it was clear enough that the bundle was a woman possibly a young woman certainly not a small one with the bed-quilt pulled over her face and her body bent nearly double she ambled off by the side of the old gentleman, disappearing up the staircase, where doubtless a kango awaited her. In the haste of covering her up, too much of the bed-quilt had been appropriated to her head, and as she bent forward there was disclosed a vista of loosely made trousers draggling down to the heel. I wish the old gentleman could have been made aware of this. I should like to have seen his expressive countenance when he made the discovery but he was too much occupied in getting a third wife out of a crowded station and went on a little ahead all unknowing 
Delhi is a striking illustration of the passion for building which possessed the Mughal emperors. There is one Delhi, too well known to the British nation, who in 1857 watched with bated breath the movements of the little band of 8,000 men who made believe to be besieging the town with its army of 30,000 rebels armed and desperate. But known to history there is not one Delhi, but 45 square miles of Delhis. The advantages of the site on which the present city stands were always clear to the old city builders, but sometimes, because Delhi had been rooted up by an invader, even oftener because the reigning emperor desired to associate his own name with the city, Delhi was always being rebuilt somewhere within a square of forty-five miles. The present city was built by Shah Jahan about the middle of the seventeenth century. Five and a half miles are enclosed within its ramparts of red granite, battlemented and turreted. It has twelve gates, the name of one, the Kashmir Gate, being imperishable as long as English history shall be told. Of the ancient Delhis there remain only ruins, the best known surrounding the Kutub Minar, the loftiest column in the world. At the present time it stands 240 feet high, tapering from a base of 50 feet in diameter to a summit of 13 feet. When first built it stood sixty feet higher. Its form is peculiar, being divided by heavy balconies into seven stories, the first three being of red sandstone and the last two of white marble. Six bands carrying inscriptions encircle the basement story of the tower. Some of them contain passages from the Koran, others hymn the praises of successive sultans who built the tower or from time to time repaired it. Like Agra, Delhi has its fort enclosing the palace of the emperor. It extends for a mile along the bank of the Jumna, and is a mile and a half in circuit. On the three sides facing the town there rises a wall of red sandstone forty feet high, flanked with turrets and cupolas. The palace has suffered more grievously than those at Agra, Shah Jahan made the place too tempting for the times in which he lived. Ah, Gott, Blucher whispered as he looked round upon London, driven through it as an honoured guest after the peace which followed on Waterloo. What a place to loot! The thoughts of neighbouring kings turned with equal tenderness toward Delhi when they heard of the treasures with which Shah Jahan had loaded it. There was the peacock throne, six feet long and four feet broad, of solid gold inlaid with precious stones. Twelve pillars of gold supported the canopy, wrought of the same precious metal and trimmed with a deep fringe of pearls. On each side of the throne stood two umbrellas, beside which King Coffee's sunshade was a worthless rag. Shah Jahan's umbrellas, symbols of his imperial state, were made of crimson velvet, royally embroidered with gold thread and pearls, with handles eight feet long of solid gold flashing with diamonds. In the rainy season a stout seven-and-sixpenny gingham would have been of more use. But these umbrellas had attractions of their own, which proved irresistible to the Persian Nadir Shah, who swooped down on Delhi 
rolled up the umbrellas and took them off to Tehran, together with the peacock throne, with its back cunningly wrought in jewels so as to represent an outspread peacock's tail. The throne itself, not to mention the umbrellas, was worth six million sterling to the Persian. He was so well satisfied that he did not too carefully strip the palace, and when in later years the Maharattas took their turn, they found, amongst other things, the silver filigree ceiling of the throne room, which they melted down into a block of silver worth a hundred and seventy thousand pounds. Of these barbaric splendours there is scarcely any trace left. Of the peacock's throne there remains only the marble block on which its glories were uplifted. The audience chamber, a square marble pavilion, was transformed into a ballroom when the Prince of Wales visited Delhi, and fountains plashed, flowers bloomed, and gay company gathered as they had been wont to do in the time of Shah Jahan. But that was an accidental and unrepeated reflection of glories dead and gone. Leading out of the hall is a fine room with a balcony, on which Aurangzebe was wont to take his pipe and his ease, and watch the elephants fight on the bank of the Jumna which runs below. Here also is the Zinana, used as the mess-room of the twelfth, after Delhi was stormed. There is an underground passage of plain stone steps, by which the last king of Delhi, an Indian Mr. Smith, without the umbrella, fled when the Kashmir gate was blown in. Less fortunate than Louis-Philippe, Bahadur Shah was caught by Major Hodson when he had got as far as the tomb of the Emperor Humayun, and sent a prisoner to Rangoon. The Turkish bath is not the least beautiful structure in the palace. The walls are charmingly inlaid, the pavement being formed of plaques of plain marble, the joinings so skilfully hidden with inlaying of bloodstone, black marble and yellow, that the floor seems one massive block. In 1857, after the storming of Delhi, the palace was used as barracks for the British soldier, who, having leisure and bayonet points ready, pursued that search for the beautiful alluded to at Agra and elsewhere. So diligent was the pursuit, and so indiscriminate the choice, that wide spaces of wall have been reduced to patchwork, great gaps showing where precious stones had shone. The ceilings have been whitewashed, doubtless during the occupation of the place as a barrack, but here and there glimpses of the old paint and gilding are caught. One specialty about the palace is the occasional plaques of marble, so thin that the sunlight suffuses it from without, as if it were horn. Another is the mosaic in precious stones, representing flowers, fruits, birds, and beasts. This decoration was lavished on the hall of public audience, where sat the Mughal kings in the days of their greatness. This spot was greatly affected by that free-handed patron of art, the British soldier, and when he marched out of Delhi, after saving the empire, the walls of the audience chamber looked as if they were recovering from a severe attack of smallpox. This hall is now being repaired. The throne on which the kings of Delhi sat whilst giving public audience faces an open court, looking out upon what is now a tree-grown park, 
but was at the time of the mutiny crowded with native houses spread out at the feet of the monarch as was the custom wherever a palace was reared the panels of marble covering the block on which the throne rests are amongst the finest carvings i have seen each carries alternately a lily and a sunflower of great growth and exquisite grace the big heads droop as naturally as if they grew in garden mould instead of sprouting in adamantine marble an ugly iron railing of the kitchen area order surrounds the base of the throne why is it padlocked i asked the guide the canteen's close by he explained british soldier gets wines then when tight comes and smashes stones the authorities check this misdirected energy by means of lofty railings and the soldier if he feels like smashing things after getting wines must needs knock his knuckles against the iron bars with a fine disregard of historical and art associations one barrack canteen is really situated close by the throne and beer-stained tables are spread where moslems used to hold forth their hands to mogul majesty the canteen displays a sort of timetable so curious that i took a copy it runs thus the lines being set forth after the fashion of a railway timetable extra beer eight till nine a m dinner beer twelve to twelve forty five first half dram four thirty to five thirty extra beer five thirty to six thirty evening beer six thirty to seven thirty second half dram seven forty five to eight fourteen thus is the british soldier's day portioned out by a kind of beery dial face at eight o'clock his day begins with the possibility of extra beer and at eight fourteen sharp it closes night and dullness fall illumined only by the reflection that half a dram is better than no drink across the greensward within view of the throne is a venerable people tree which like others of its kind was selected during the mutiny as the scene of an infamous act here fifty-three english women and children were put to the sword with old bahadur shah last and most impotent of the mogul emperors sitting on his jewelled throne and congratulating himself upon the return of the olden times when he was something more than a shadowy monarch surrounded by a mock court a little later another people tree a larger one in the centre of the city near the police court bore fruit of another kind here after the city was stormed two hundred and fifty mutineers taken with arms in their hands were strung up by the neck half a dozen on a bough till the stalwart tree bent under the weight of this unwonted harvest not far from the palace is the juma musjid counted the most beautiful mosque in india it stands in a court four hundred and fifty feet square paved with red stone and approached by handsome gates of sandstone in the centre is a marble basin full of water in which the pious moslem laves his feet before entering the holy place the mosque is of immense size surmounted by three cupolas of white marble each crowned with spires of copper richly gilt 
two minarets a hundred and thirty feet high flank it on either side from these a splendid view is obtained of delhi and of the ruins which for miles around mark the site of the earlier cities the interior of the mosque is paved with slabs of white marble each decorated with a black border some eighteen hundred worshippers kneel at prayer here and in the palmy days of mohammedanism fifty thousand more stood outside and joined in the service there is to this day on the top of the flight of steps leading into the courtyard and immediately facing the qibla and mecca a watch-tower on which two mullahs stood and signalled to the mighty multitude outside the progress of the service a hand uplifted and the great congregation knew though they could neither see nor hear that the priest was reading both hands raised and they fell upon their knees with heads bowed to the ground knowing that the priest was praying there are still sufficient moslems in delhi to form a congregation for the mosque on fridays but the multitude in the courtyard has passed out never to return in place of this magnificent and imposing demonstration moslemism has now nothing to show but a few relics kept in a hut in a corner of the courtyard and producible for the inspection of the unbeliever upon the jingling of the invincible anna as usual there are two men in charge of the show one who displays the wares and the other who stands by doing nothing and asks for backsheesh after the first has been paid the old mussulman diving into the recesses of the hut produces a copy of the koran which he affirms is thirteen hundred years old and which he handles with a lack of reverence that sets the unbeliever at his ease the precious volume is contained in a shabby green velvet box much the worse for constant handling there is in another equally shabby box of tawdry green velvet a portion of the koran writ by the hand of mahomet's grandson king tamerlane the showman says brought these precious things from medina even of more absorbing interest is a red hair shown under glass in a mean little tin box and looking at first sight like a cutting of stout thread this is a hair from the beard of mahomet miraculously preserved through all these centuries in another box is a stone with four very decided toe marks this is the impress of mahomet's foot looking at this bit of marble and its deep imprint gravely held out to view by the hoary mussulman in charge it is borne in upon one that the prophet was not a man in whose way it would be safe to stand the hut in which these relics are kept is something like the dark room of a photographer a similitude strengthened by the hasty manner in which the old mussulman dives in brings a relic out to the daylight and when it has been duly examined disappears in search of a second one on a rail in front of the shed were tied bits of string and scraps of red and blue rag these it was explained were the mementos of pilgrims who had brought to the feet of the prophet special petitions in the event of their being granted the faithful moslem returned took away his rag leaving a flower for the prophet and a few coppers for the keeper of the prophet's hair and toe marks a practice singularly akin to that noted at the temple of nikko 
where men and women brought petitions to Buddha, written on scraps of paper which they left on a string before his altar. As in Japan, I noted that there was an accumulation of these scraps, showing a gathering store of unfulfilled desire. The Kashmir Gate still stands, its walls broken with cannonball, and a tablet recording the names of the six English and five natives who blew it up. Through its shattered framework Nicholson led the storming party, and it is easy to trace his way through the narrow streets in which, fighting hand to hand with the mutineers, and falling in scores under the fire poured upon them from windows and roofs of houses, the little band made its way. Their object was to reach the Kabul gate, where a rebel battery still harassed the besiegers. The young general, a conspicuous object on horseback, rode sword in hand at the head of his men, and had driven the rebels a few paces past the entry to the troublesome battery, when a shot, fired from a mosque hard by, brought him down. The mosque has been angrily demolished, but a plain tablet let into the city wall marks the place where the hero fell. Nicholson sleeps in a shady cemetery overlooking the city where he completed his deathless fame, and where he fell in the hour of victory and in the earliest prime of manhood. End of chapter 19